chapter 8 in the book of Romans, and uh, is where we're going to be today. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to that. Uh, to get there, it's on page 158 in the Pew Bible. Uh, or you can go past uh, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts, and then you'll find yourself in Romans. Um, so since we've not been preaching through Romans, it's a little... Uh, you've got to give some context to it. And so just, just as a basic context, and I believe it was that Martin Luther Jones spent like 100,000 years on this, so this would be a quick summary. Uh, but basically up to this point in Romans, God has revealed in great detail that the forgiveness of sin uh, has not come through the law, but has come through Christ. That's a really rudimentary summary. But, um, <clears throat> and, and really what we've seen is that, and what we've been told is that in Christ... We are dead to sin, and we are alive to God. And the way Paul says it is that we're no longer slaves to sin, and that kind of gives you a word picture, but we are now slaves to righteousness. Uh, chapter 8, then, is contrasting this, this life lived in the flesh apart from faith with the Christian life, uh, which is lived in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Uh, and verse 13 today is going to be our, our main text, and, and I'm going to go ahead and read verses 12 through 16 uh, to give some immediate context, but we'll be focusing on verse 13. Romans 8, <clears throat> verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The grass withers and the flower fades. Well, let's pray. <clears throat> God, you have said that we exist for your glory. You have commanded us to glorify you in our eating, and our drinking, and our everything. Please grant that what you have commanded us, so that our lives would daily and moment by moment bring glory to your name. Encourage us when we fail that Christ has died for our sin, but please teach us to keep pursuing life in the Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. And so, first and foremost today, what we need to know is that Christ has already defeated sin in the life of the believer, for the believer. And so as we look at our specific text here, I want to read it again just to get it fresh in your mind. It says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. See, this is a uh, two, basically, a combination of two very simple if-then statements. If A is true, then B will happen. And so here's what the if-then statements are. If A... You live according to the flesh, then B, you will die. And the second if-then statement is, if A, by the Spirit, you kill the deeds of the flesh, then B, you will live. So when you first hear that, let me just ask you outright, does, does this imply that we can lose our salvation? Because I know that more often than I like to admit, my life falls into someone who is living according to the flesh. More than I want to be true. And I hope you already know the answer to that question. No, this does not imply that we can lose our salvation. And in fact, 17 verses later, 
uh, is the great statement which God says, uh, it is God who works out uh, our salvation from beginning to end. Romans 8.30, if you've got your text open, just look over there. It says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Each of those steps is accomplished by God. God predestines, God calls, God justifies, God glorifies. And so let me be clear right here from the beginning. You do not begin the work of salvation in your life. And you do not add to the work of salvation in your life. When Christ died on the cross, the wrath of God was poured out on him. And so imagine, if you will, a a cup of water. Um, It was poured out on Jesus Christ. That's the cup of wrath poured out on Jesus Christ. The wrath intended for you was poured out on him. And that means that that cup is now empty. And I remind you of this so that you understand that, that Paul, who's the author of Romans, is speaking to Christians. He's speaking to those whose faith is in Christ. That's why in verse 12... He addresses the readers as brothers, brothers in Christ. Okay, so it's important for us to understand this and, and to also to understand the place of commands in Scripture. Uh, we spoke about that a little bit last week. And uh, here I want you to remember that when God brings us to believe the gospel, to believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sin, then we are filled with the Holy Spirit, our bodies. 1 Corinthians 6.19 tells us, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? And so, is your faith today in Christ? If it is, then you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And sometimes we forget that. Um, The problem with spirits, though, is at least humanly speaking, we cannot see them. I mean, look around this sanctuary. Can you see who's filled with the Holy Spirit? Are they glowing? Is there anything moving that or showing that? You can't because redemption is invisible. It's like air. You can't see the air in this room, not with your eyes. But you can see the evidence of air in this room. You can see other things moving when the air moves. You can see paper blow or hair move and things of that nature. You can see the people in this room breathing in and breathing out. If I were to blow up a balloon right now, you'd you'd not be able to see the air, but you would see this balloon stretching as it was filled with air. That would be the evidence of such. And so here's what I want you to see is that those who are possessed by Christ, they will show evidence that the Holy Spirit does indeed dwell with them. Uh, One such evidence that we see in our text today is this putting to death the deeds of the flesh. See, your fight against sin in your life is evidence of the Holy Spirit in you. And and our text today is essentially a command for us as Christians to be killing sin. Uh, It's not a requirement to receive forgiveness, but but it is evidence that we have already received forgiveness. And so this is specifically for those who profess faith in Christ as we consider this sermon today. Uh, It's a call to what God is calling you to which is a bit of a a love-hate relationship. It's a a call to love God with all of your heart, and it's a call for you to hate sin with all of your being. And really, that brings me to the second point. Christian, you are called to be fighting sin to the death. So my goal this evening is, is to show you that God hates sin, 
and to stir us up to also hate sin. So imagine a man busts in the front door of your house and he begins to attack your family. What do you do? Do you stand there and let him do it? Or, or do you attack him as a sense of, of defense? Do you, you, that's what you do. You use guns, use baseball bats, shovels, lamps, shoes, whatever you've got, you're going to use to defend your family in that moment. Um, to protect yourself and to protect your family from this thing that wishes to, or this person who wishes to kill them. And, and so I ask you, why then do we tolerate sin in our lives? As if it's no big deal. I mean, do we just think that sin is inevitable, so why bother anyway? Again, it's, it's like a man with a knife walks in the front door. And this creepy man just sits in the corner, sharpening his knife, saying all these threats to you. How would you respond by that? Would you respond by simply ignoring him in the hope that maybe he'll just go away someday? I mean, that's sin. Sin wants to kill you. And God has called us to kill sin, be killing sin. Let me explain this, though, so you understand God's place in this. Uh, if you remember David and Goliath, uh, when Goliath was brought down with, with that smooth stone and, and, and David kills Goliath, did he kill him? Was it David who did it? Yes. But did God kill Goliath? Yes. Christian, you are called to fight sin in your life. Yes, you are. Uh, did Jesus already defeat sin on the cross for you? Yes. Is it God who will defeat sin in your life? Yes. So I want you to listen to the word of God. It says this many different ways. Matthew 18, 9 says, And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better that you enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. That's how serious this battle against sin in our lives needs to be. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5, For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Colossians 3, 5 through 6, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And Titus two eleven through 12, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. There are so many texts in Scripture like this where God is calling His people to battle sin actively in their life. And uh, I expect you, uh, like me, that you have sin in your life. Sin that you should be fighting. Maybe it's pride. You can't admit wrong. You quickly become angry when challenged. Uh, you tear other downs to build yourself up. Maybe it's vanity. You want people to love you, to be impressed by you, and, and you, people to find you beautiful, to find you wonderful. And you don't really care about people. You just care what people care about you. You know, it's the question of what is this sin in your life that you find yourself needing to battle against? Addiction. Maybe it's just apathy. Uh, discontentment, lying, anger, bitterness, greed, pornography, gossip, materialism, something else. 
Because Christian, you have been freed from sin by the cross of Christ so that you can and so that you should be fighting sin in your life. And so really my point comes down to this. Every Christian, not just crazy, zealous Christians or pastors or elders, but every Christian should be daily at war with sin in their life, seeking not merely to contain it, but to kill it at the root. And not by your own power, but by the power of the cross of Jesus. I mean, do you understand this, that sin is actually your enemy? Not just your enemy, but God's enemy. And it raises that question, do we understand how the enemy works? And, and let me try to give you a picture of this. Um, weeds. You've probably seen that sign this week uh, that I put out there. Stupid weeds, right? Um, I did not say weed, I said weeds. Laura and I don't really keep a garden. We don't grow any vegetables at all. And yet we find ourselves fighting weeds all summer long. A few years ago when we lived in South Kansas City, there was this mint that began growing in the corner of our yard, and we thought it was awesome. We didn't even plant the mint, but since it started growing there, we thought it was fantastic. Uh, we'd use it for all sorts of stuff, but, but then we noticed there were these other plants that were also growing in the middle of our giant, giant mint section. Um, and, and what these were were weeds, and they began to kill our mint. And I found myself angry at these weeds for existing because they were destroying something that I found important to me. And so we, we, after we became angry, we declared war on these weeds, and we began pulling them up every time we went in the backyard. And it didn't take long for me to realize that we hate weeds, and that as this connection between sin and weeds grew in my mind, I began to wonder, why don't I hate sin as much as I hate weeds? And this connection between Sin and weeds actually goes much deeper than you think. You remember in the garden after Adam and Eve first sinned, God lists the consequences for the serpent, and then God lists the consequences for Eve, and then finally for Adam. And in Genesis 3.17, he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. You see, sin enters the world, and now the ground is producing thorns and thistles. It's producing weeds for Adam. See, it's bizarre how similar weeds in a garden are to sin in our lives. Consider this. Um, weeds produce absolutely no fruit. When you go to, to Dillon's or Ray's Apple Market uh, here in town, you are not going to find a section in the, in the produce that is produced by weeds. There is no fruit that's going to be sold to you that is from weeds. Weeds are not food. They do not nourish and neither does sin. Also, weeds kill real fruit-producing plants. So not only do weeds not produce fruit, but they are choking out the root of good fruit-producing plants. Sin, likewise, chokes out the fruit of the Spirit in our own lives. Sin attacks us right down to the root, and our joy in God and the good things that God has given is taken. See, when we use our time in pursuit of, of lust or in pursuit of greed or any other sin, we lessen our pursuit of, of love and sharing the gospel and, and enjoyment simply in God. Um, here's what I mean, though. Do you, do you want more of Christ in the experience of your life? Do you want to think more on Christ? Do you desire to see your relationship with Christ grow healthy? Then then what we're getting at here is to begin pulling weeds in our life, and by weeds I mean sin, uh, to be about killing sin. 
The third way weeds are like sin is that there is no need to nurture weeds. They just show up. Nobody plants weeds. You can't go down to the store and buy a packet of weed seed. No one does that. Um, it takes no effort. But you do have to work at producing fruit plants. Water them, protect them from insects, make sure they're getting sunlight uh, that's shining on them, make sure you pull the weeds around them. Uh, but again, weeds, they're just there. No planting them, no watering them, they just show up. Isn't that our experience with sin? Sin just shows up in our lives. Uh, our life in Christ, though, must be nurtured. We spend time in the Word of God. We talk with God through prayer. We come to worship God. We partake in the Lord's Supper. We interact in parish groups and other settings for encouragement. But we don't actively nurture sin in our lives. All you have to do is stop fighting sin. And voila, there it is. The fourth is that the faster you catch weeds, the easier they are to kill. If you see weeds, when they are baby weeds, they will have small roots and be easier to completely remove out of the ground. Uh, in the book of James, we see this idea the, uh, of a desire for sin. Uh, and that desire growing into actual sin and finally resulting in death, the way he puts it, James 1.15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it has fully grown, brings forth death. See, the faster that we are able to recognize sin in our life, the easier it is to put it to death. Fifth, weeds procreate very quickly. And if you neglect weeds, they soon become absolutely overwhelming. Uh, consider dandelions. You've probably seen them all around town this time of year. If you get to them early, then they're just those yellow flowers and you can destroy them. Pull them up by the roots and they're gone. But if you wait, if you wait to deal with them, they become these launch pads for more weeds. Literally flying weed seeds throughout your yard. Sins like that. One sin leads to another and another and another. Uh, we covet something a little, and so we steal. And so we lie to cover that up, and we lie again to cover that up. And the next thing you know, one little act of unrepentant sin has spread all over our life. Six, some weeds appear very lovely, and we like them. Um, those are the ones that produce flowers. Again, dandelions, right? Um, you want them to be growing out there. Part of you thinks, these are great, they're pretty, they're beautiful, let's leave them there. Uh, in fact, the dandelions, even when they turn into those little puffy things, they, they're fun. You go out there and you think, let's play with this. One blow and the dandelion is gone. And what do you do? You go looking for another one and another one and another one. And each one gives you just a moment of enjoyment. But it doesn't last. It's a lie all along. And, and long term, it's destructive. It's destroying your grass and anything else you are seeking to cultivate in your yard. Seven, weeds often are only seem bad, only seem bad when you're actually actively fighting them. You see, it's, it's harder to fight them than to just let them go. I think this is very much our experience with sin in our lives. We don't even consider how hard it is to fight sin in our lives because too often we aren't fighting sin in our lives. Uh, there's some of you that have actual vegetable gardens and you have good dirt and you've planted things and your tomatoes and zucchinis and all that is ready to start growing and you protect that garden. You see a bug, maybe you're spraying something, something to get rid of it. You have walls around this garden to protect it. Uh, you see a weed and you have to go out there and you pluck it. It's hard work because you're engaged in the battle for this. 
Others of you have no garden or you planted a garden and then it became too hot or too much trouble and you absolutely gave up on it. Taking care of that garden is not difficult because you are not fighting the weeds. You just don't care. See, you may be the same way with sin in your life. You know what it is. You know it's sin. But it's not difficult to deal with because really you're not dealing with it. And that leads us to the next point. Killing both weeds and sin is hard work. It's not easy. It's constant. It doesn't ever end. You do it again and again and again, and it's an ongoing battle, and it's difficult, but it is good for you, and it is rewarding. Nine, pulling weeds reveals more weeds. When you finally decide to go kill weeds... Uh, by pulling them out of the ground, uh, you may at first just see the big ones, those huge ones growing in your garden. But you'll find once you remove those, you start to notice smaller weeds and smaller weeds yet. Um, and so that becomes more and more, you see. See, when we engage in fighting sin, when God has victory in our lives over sin, we become even more aware of sin in our life. This is why people in history who have fought most violently against sin in their life have always become more aware of how sinful they are and thus more aware of how great the grace of Christ is. Uh, consider the Apostle Paul. Here's a guy, I read, of him, read his writings and I think, boy, I wish my life looked like him. And yet he calls himself the chief of sinners. Even as much as we saw God work in his life, here's a man who was seeing just how deep his sin went. Uh, the more you fight sin, the more aware of sin you'll be. Ten, sin just like weeds are easiest to pull after a storm. After a storm has rained down on your garden, the ground is soft, and you can more easily pull weeds right out of the ground. See, their, their footing is loose. Uh, we don't like suffering or pain in our life. We absolutely hate it, and yet uh, storms are difficult. Uh, sickness, death, heartbreak, uh, all other forms of Suffering is absolutely miserable in our life, and yet it's in those times that fighting sin is actually the easiest because our, our hearts are softened and we, we see more clearly the value of Christ and eternal things and above everything else, uh, really Christ above everything else, and, and the fight to pull sins out of our life is even easier in those moments because the grip of sin is loosened on us. Eleven, two or more people picking weeds together is more effective than one. We fight in community. That means we share. We ask for prayer. We pray. We confess. We repent. Repent. We fail. We encourage. We rest in the forgiveness of our sin. We rest in the cross of Christ. And we remind each other that we belong to Christ even through these struggles. You belong to Christ. And he has defeated the power of sin in your life so that we can now fight with confidence. Uh, here's the thing, though. For community to work, you've got to stop hiding things. That doesn't mean you have to tell everyone. You don't have to send me your sins so I can put it in the email we send out every week. Um, you don't want that. But you do need to find someone to share this with, someone who will help you and fight along with you and encourage you to remind you daily of the gospel of which you have believed. Someone who will fill your life with Scripture. Uh, the last similarity between weeds and sin is this. We must kill sin at the root. The roots are longer than the stem, typically, and if you don't get to the root of a weed, they will come right back. Uh, you could easily 
actually go out in your yard and, and mow down your weeds and it's going to look pretty good for your neighbors and your visitors and you can you know make it spruce it all up a little bit but it's going to grow right back if that's the way you handle it that's why we're not called to wound send we're called to kill sin and if you're going to kill sin properly you must go all the way to the root and that's why mere rules that you set up in your life can be helpful there's nothing wrong with that but that's not going to be a long-term solution in your battle against sin. So in verse 13, um, God's calling us to kill sin by the Spirit. He says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So let me ask you this. If you're not already willing to resolve today to begin this war on sin in your life, not because I so say so, but because you see this in the Word of God, that God says so. You know, will you look to God to win this battle as you fight against sin? Will you stop believing the lie that sin has anything good to offer you at all? Now at this point, it's probably fair for you to ask me, how do we do that? What does that even mean? Where do we begin? I mean, how do we start declaring war on sin? How do I practically fight sin in my life in a way that hangs on the gospel and not some sense of self-motivation, self-will? There are a couple things for this you need to know. First, know your weapon and how to use it. Now, weapons are always important in war. When, you, uh, when we go to war to kill weeds in the garden, we actually go out with maybe a shovel, uh, a garden hoe, poison, uh, maybe some other things that exist. I guess you could burn them all down if you wanted to. Um, we need to understand what our weapons are. In Ephesians 6, 13 through 17, God paints a picture of the Christian going to war against the enemy. He says this, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, only one of those is an offensive weapon. That's the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. In our text today, we're told to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Um, now in Ephesians 6, we see that we have been given a weapon, a, a sword. It's a beautiful picture, uh, the sword of the Spirit. And, and to understand this, swords are not for wounding. Swords are for killing, for slaying. In the New, in the Old Testament, 419 times this word sword appears, almost exclusively in reference to someone being killed, threatened or threatened to be killed or attempted to be killed. Uh, Genesis 34, 26, we read, they killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword. In 1 Kings 19, 1, we read, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and, now he had, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. I think there's 417 more of these I could give you, but I won't. Um, so just let me give you one more. Remember when Judas shows up in the garden? Uh, I cannot pronounce that right now. Um, but he shows up to betray Jesus, and, and Peter wants to protect him. And so Peter pulls out his sword, and we read that he, read, read that he cut off the ear uh, of one of the soldiers who came to arrest Jesus. Peter wasn't Zorro. He was a fisherman. Um, 
this was not some warning, you know, detailed thing where he just, I will cut off your ear to give you a warning. It's, you know, what happened here was that he missed. Uh, Peter intended to kill this man. That's the kind of protection he was offering this. And, and basically what I want you to see here is that swords are for killing. And so as we battle to fight sin in our lives, we must use the weapon that God has given us, his word. And do you, do you see this? Can you understand that Christ defeated sin on the cross and now we daily fight the effects of sin with the word of God? Here's what I mean by that. Um, the power of, of sin in your life, the reason it is so damaging in your life is because it tells a pretty believable lie. It tells us that whatever sin we're desiring is, is more desirable than what God has for us. That's, that's the lie. And so the reason some lust and the reason that, that some gossip is the same they believe that the lie, the lie that, that lust or that gossip will bring satisfaction, will bring joy, will bring importance, will bring pleasure of some sort. That's the lie that sin is telling. And, and it, might, it might actually succeed in that, at least for just a short period of time. But it's not lasting satisfaction. It's not eternal joy or pure pleasure that is found in God and found in the will of God. At the same time that we're believing this lie of sin, we're also not believing the promise of God that he is more satisfying than all of that. The word of God, on the other hand, is truth. And we wield the sword of the Spirit like this then. As, as we are in the word of God, we become more aware of the things of God. We become more aware of the fact that Christ has defeated sin. And that's a powerful thing to know. We become more aware of the fact that Jesus has freed us from the power of sin. We become more aware of the truth that we belong to Christ, that we're His. Uh, we become more aware of what Christ desires our lives to look like. We actually understand that. And um, that is, we know what sin is. We know what obedience is. We know what attitudes and actions bring glory to, us, to the name of Christ. We become more aware of, of who God the Father is and who the Holy Spirit is and who Jesus the Son is. And the more we truly know God, the more we will grow in our love for God. And when we are satisfied in God, the false lies of sin are shattered. This is really what, what the psalmist in Psalm 119.11 is getting at when he writes, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And just like a sword must be in your hand to use it, so must the word of God be in our presence, in our possession if we're going to use it usefully, or if it's going to be useful in defeating sin. Uh, so to use our examples of lust and gossip, we might fight those sins with the sword of the Spirit, that is the Word of God, uh, by memorizing or becoming familiar with what God's Word has to say with those subjects. If, if gossip is growing in our garden like a sin, we meditate on something like Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it might give grace to those who hear. Likewise, the other example, if lust is knocking down your door, you fight by thinking on words like 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And those are just simple. There are much um, more deeper ways to do that. 
Um, you see, the word of God is, is filled with warnings and it's filled with encouragements for the Christian, uh, for the Christian who's engaged in this battle against sin. And, and so use it, read it, study it. Let your mind soak it up. Memorize it. Pray through it. Believe it. Believe everything it says about the evils of sin. Believe everything it says about the beauties of Christ. Believe everything it says that Christ has accomplished for you. We also need to know that we cannot defeat sin by our own power. It can only be done, as our text says, by the Spirit. That phrase, by the Spirit, tells us that this is a work of God. Uh, that verse 13 also says, you put to death. This tells us we must be engaged in the battle. We can't just sit back and wonder when God's going to defeat sin in our life. Uh, it's as John Murray has said, he said, The believer's once-for-all death to the law of sin does not free him from the necessity of mortifying, that means killing, of mortifying sin in his members. It makes it necessary and possible for him to do so. So let me also remind you of this. Let me remind you of, of the love of Christ. Let me remind you of that, lest you get the wrong idea that there is no one in this room, and because this is the truth, there is no one in this room who does not struggle with sin. I sin. You sin. The person next to you sins in ways that if you knew about them would absolutely embarrass them. If you're fighting sin, though, do not be discouraged even by failure. See, when people come and tell me that they're battling sin uh, or some sin in their life and they keep feel, or failing, I, I feel for them. I want to help them, I pray with them, I want to encourage them, but I'm not worried about their spiritual condition. I'm not worried because fighting is a sign of life. And that means, you know, that they're owning up to their sin. That means that they're repenting of their sin. That means, um, you know, really repentance is a distinguishing mark of a Christian, of true faith. So the truth is, my real concern for a person is for the one who doesn't care, the one who apathetically presumes upon grace, the person who just accepts sin in their life. And, and that worries me because dead people don't fight. One last thing I want to show you. If you've got your Bibles open to Romans 8 still, uh, look back to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8. I, I want you to see this because sometimes we mistake freedom from sin with bondage to works. And that's not what's happening here. Verses 1 and 2 read, and we actually read it as part of our liturgy today. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Our fight against sin is from the position of already forgiven. That's a huge distinction. We begin from the position of already forgiven. And you see, the assumption is that because of the redemption accomplished by Jesus Christ in you, that you will desire to not sin. That you'll desire to grow close to Christ. Um, that as verse 7 says, you will wish to submit to God's law. And so I, I tell you this, relax. Because if your faith is in Christ, then there really is no condemnation. And so fight sin with all your might, but rest in Christ. Because even when you fail, that sin has also eternally been paid by our Savior. And so we go to him repenting. 
Again, that's, that's the distinguishing mark of a Christian. I'll close with these no well-known words of the Puritan John Owen. Maybe you've heard them before. If not, hopefully they stick with you. Uh, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Let's pray. Father, may your word change us. May we go from here today aware of our sin, uh, the sin in our life that threatens to kill us. May we go from here with a love for you and a hate for sin. May we go from here as, as soldiers to war, prepared to battle sin in our lives. May we not go with our own power, or our own weapons, but with your power and with your weapon, the sword of the Spirit, your holy word. Oh, give us strength. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.